All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. Islam, the solution is something which as Muslims we all believe or should all believe that the solution for the Muslim world for the whole world is Islam solution for economic problems social problems whatever problems human beings face whether it be issues of environment or whether it be uh, issues of oppression, Islam has the solution. Unfortunately, according to Allah's Qadr, another solution is commonly known in the world today. A solution which is promoted by Western civilization. That solution is secular democracy. It is where the West has evolved to in terms of governance. They have evolved to this point where they found secular democracy to be the answer for the past, the past of Western civilization where it was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church and other church institutions. Because they feel that secular democracy is the pinnacle of evolutionary development of human society, then they feel that it is the answer. And what all other societies in the world should follow. And because of that, we see them systematically imposing democracy, secular democracy on the nations of the world. Now, from a Muslim perspective, secular democracy does have advantages where there is no other option. Muslims in India, for example, it is to their advantage that the system is officially secular democratic. So we're not necessarily saying that there is no good in secular democracy. But where Muslims have the option, then 
The solution lies in Sharia. Sharia, which is Islam, is the answer. It is the answer for Muslims and the rest of the world if they choose it. We cannot impose it on them either. It is the choice, the correct choice for Muslims. And of course it's important for Muslims to understand that. To know it and to live it. If we look at secular democracy before looking at the solution, the Islamic solution, we see that it is built basically on three principles. The first principle is that of equality. And Islam doesn't have any problem, Muslim, Sharia doesn't have any problem with the concept, general concept, that human beings are all equal before God. Men and women are equal before Allah. They're equally responsible to worship Allah. The second principle, which is known as rational empiricism, where they have decided from their experience that the human mind is capable of determining what is objectively best for human beings. The human mind is capable of doing that. That principle, if we try to look at ancient democratic institutions, if we look at the American uh, Declaration of Independence, the American Constitution, the equivalent of the secular Bible for Western secular democracy, we see in it a clause, an article, right in the very beginning, which was arrived at in order to work out voting principles, called the Three-Fifths Amendment, in which it states that a black man, a non-white man, would be considered three-fifths of a white man. That was the best brains of the 18th century. What happened to rational empiricism? What happened to objectivity? Human beings are subjective. All of the founding fathers of America were slave holders. They looked at their slaves as being inferior to themselves. So, it is not surprising that in their declaration, in their constitution, in order to give the slave a value for their voting purposes, not that the slaves were able to vote, but 
a person who had a hundred slaves had a stronger vote than one who only had one slave. So how did we measure that strength? It was measured by giving each slave the value of three-fifths of a white man. So those founding fathers were not bad people. They were good people. But they were living in a society where slavery was a norm. So it didn't seem in any way, you know, unfair or anything to come to that conclusion. But what it tells us now, of course it's been amended, what it tells us is that the human mind isn't capable of arriving by itself at what is in fact objectively beneficial and correct and good for human society. Not on a consistent basis. Not to say they could never arrive at anything, but to say that this becomes the deciding factor for right and wrong, we have a problem. The third principle, that of consensus, discussion and consent, where everyone making a decision has the equal right to express their views and no view is considered to be absolutely correct. No law, no principle which was previously passed can be deemed irreplaceable or unmodifiable. No. Everything is open to discussion and whatever the majority agree on, that now becomes what is right. The right of the majority. In a limited sense, in Islam, we have the principle of shura. وَأَمْرُهُمْ shura بَيْنَهُمْ So, in that shura, where a panel or committee of experts agree on a particular uh, issue, the majority agree, decisions can be made on the basis of it. We have to build this convention hall. Engineers get together. There is a particular design we want. And the way that the majority of engineers agree is the best way to do it, we can go ahead and do it. No problem with that. We don't have a problem with that. But when you are going to make moral decisions of right and wrong, then you now have a problem. Because if right and wrong is decided in this way, then what is wrong or what was wrong yesterday can become right today. And what was right 
yesterday can become wrong today. And we have no end of examples of this. One of the probably biggest examples which society is now being threatened by, human society, human civilization is being challenged with, is the concept of homosexuality. Homosexuality has reached a point in the West where it is not only accepted, it is openly promoted. In Canada, and I'm a national of Canada, a couple of years back, Bill 13 was passed. In Bill 13, it gives permission for the teaching of homosexuality in government kindergartens from kindergarten to start teaching homosexuality as being something normal decent acceptable commendable from kindergarten they were already teaching it from 6th grade high school they were already doing that now they took it right down not just to grade 1 but right down to kindergarten this is being now promoted on a countrywide scale and it's spreading it's not just there it's happening in the US happening in the UK other countries and of course it is done in a very subtle way it is not done directly for those, those grade levels. They will do it like with the book called My Two Dads. Where they will say, in a nicely illustrated book, Tommy has a dad and a mom. Johnny has two dads. Now Johnny's two dads are really great guys. They take Johnny everywhere, to the park, to the beach. Then they describe the life with Johnny's two dads. Wonderful life. They've put the, po the point in the mind of the child. That it's a good thing to have two dads. Especially if you like dad more than mom. <laughs> That's, what else could you ask for but two dads? So, this is coming at that level. And we have to consider that up until the late 70s, the society did not look at homosexuality that way. Prior to 1977, 6, 77, 78, homosexuality was considered an illness, a sickness, mental sickness. It was in the psychiatrist's Bible, it was considered to be a deviation. There were various treatments that were prescribed for it. But, a change took place. The consensus changed under pressure. And that homophobe, the homophobia, 
homosexuality was now replaced with homophobia. Meaning that one who hates homosexuality, who despises it, considers it to be evil, that person is sick. He is the one, she is the one now who needs to go to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist will straighten up their thinking. That is the product. And there are many, many other products. And of course this is coming at us, Muslims in particular now, because it's only Muslims who stand their ground. Homosexuality will never be accepted in Islam as a decent way of life. It will be always be considered to be a crime. Just as adultery, fornication, stealing, these are all crimes which will never change. We will never change our position. So, it is coming at us through the UN, through all the big international bodies, it's coming. And that is the consequence of this principle of consensus where the majority considers something to be right, then it becomes right. That's enough. And that's why also we find in society today so many other ills and the attack on Islam is justified by these the impact of these ills on society for example one of the biggest attacks on Muhammad sallallahu the prophet of Islam our prophet is that he was a pedophile this is the claim he had sexual relations with, as they said, a child. Nine years old. He was a pedophile. And of course, for most Muslims, when this is, when we're confronted with this, today we feel shy. How do you explain that? We have accepted it up until recent times. Nobody ever questioned this. There was not the issue. But all of a sudden now we're, oh, what do you say? How do you respond to this accusation? How do you defend the Prophet ﷺ from this accusation? It's the same thing. For the last thousands of years, what they now call pedophilia was not called pedophilia. It was not considered to be a crime. Go back 1,400 years and identify the society which did not allow, quote-unquote, child marriage. So all of these people were all corrupted and lost and... Is that what? Of course not. This whole issue is a recent phenomena where in the West where people have run out of ways to enjoy themselves, they started to abuse children. So you had sexual tourism coming out of 
the West into the Muslim lands, Eastern lands, where people are poor and they would buy children to abuse. So this was evil. This is evil. But they have equated that, which is pedophilia, with the Prophet Muhammad marrying a nine-year-old girl. Are they equal? No. Number, they might say, yeah, this one who's committing that is it's a nine-year-old, ten-year-old girl. Yes, this is a crime. We will punish him, put him in jail. And the Prophet ﷺ, he married a nine-year-old. So, it's the same. No, it's not the same. Marriage is something else. It's marriage in a time where all societies in the world accepted it. Even according to the Catholic Bible, and we don't necessarily believe this information, it states that Joseph, the carpenter, who married Mary, we don't believe this, as I said, this is their own facts in the Catholic Bible. He married Mary, Mary was 13 years at the time, she was 13 years old, and he was in his 90s. So what about that one? And your pedophilia. It was a norm. You will not find any society until recent times which now set limits as to what age people can marry at. That's the reality. So, scales have been flipped. Views have changed. And the consequence is of course morality which is ever-changing. Ever-changing morality. So, the Sharia rejects that because what has been defined by God as evil will always be evil. God is the objective judge. And we need an objective judge. So the solution can only come from God. It won't be found in Christianity because the message from God in Christianity has become so garbled that we cannot extract the pure truth. There are truths there, but it's not the pure truth. It's corrupted. So that's why we say, if we compare Sharia to secular democracy, definitely Sharia is the answer. Islam holds the answer. It has preserved principles which provide correct governance for human society. Of course, this is all in theory. Because they will say that, what about all these Muslim nations? Look at what they're doing. We're talking about theory. Practice is something else. What Muslims do is something else. But as a concept, is the Sharia, is Islam the solution? Or is it secular democracy? Secular democracy definitely is not the solution. It may be a solution, as I said, better for Muslims of India, that India is a secular democratic nation than being a Hindu nation. Better. 
at least rights are preserved. Because if it becomes openly, I mean it's under the cover already, it's Hindu. But at least if it became openly, then the evil, the harm which would come to Muslims would be far greater. So, Sharia is the answer. That is in comparison to modern secular democracy. On the other hand, as a general principle, the Sharia, Islam, maintains the balance. The human beings need a balance. A balance between the spiritual and the material, between all of the extremes, left, right, north, south, we need a balance. And that is why Allah described the Ummah as being one of balance. كَذَلِكَ وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا لِتَكُونُوا شُهَدَاءَ عَلَى النَّاسِ وَيَكُونَ الرَّسُولُ عَلَيْكُمْ شَهِيدًا Allah made us the Ummah وَسَطًا The balanced nation. Wasat means in the middle. You're not too far to the right, you're not too far to the left. You're not extreme in your practices, in your beliefs, in your life. It is that balance which Islam calls for. And it is here that human beings find a proper life. Where the goals, the needs of human civilization, human society are protected. Where the balance is maintained. And that's why we find in so many places, Quran, and Sunnah, etc., where Allah stresses the lack of extremism, that we should avoid extremism. لا تغلو في دينكم Prophet Muhammad told us إياكم والغلو Beware of extremism because it destroyed the people before you. The Christians were destroyed because of their extreme view concerning Asa, Jesus, alayhi salam. Where they gave him the attributes of Allah. And they worshipped him. They went to extreme. And that is destruction. Because there is no sin greater than shirk. So we are warned to avoid that extremism. To be away from it. And today, we also have Muslims who have gone to extremes with regards to Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Where instead of praying to the God who he prayed to, they pray to him. In order to pray to God. These are extremes. Extreme views. We have Muslims who will stand up and say, if you say that Muhammad is dead, you are a disbeliever. 
But Abu Bakr, when he heard of the news and came to Medina, came into the city, he found Umar ibn al-Khattab threatening anybody who said that the Prophet ﷺ was dead. He pushed him aside, went in, checked the Prophet ﷺ, removed the garment, kissed him, came back out, pushed Umar aside and said, whoever was worshipping Muhammad, know that Muhammad is dead. But whoever was worshipping the God of Muhammad, know that he is ever living. But we have people today saying, Muhammad ﷺ is not dead. And to say he is dead is a statement of kufr. This is extreme. This is extremism in the religion. Allah told Muhammad ﷺ in the Quran to emphasize that he was a man. Qul, إِنَّمَا عَنَ بَشْرٌ مِثْلُكُمْ This was the command. To say I'm a man like you. The only difference is that revelation has been sent to me. So extremes can be extremes of religious thought. It could be extremes of material, materialism and material in you know, finances, etc. Where riba has become the norm for our society. Our banks, everything is functioning with riba. This is an extreme and it's harmful, it's destructive. And the nations of the world that are currently struggling under the burden of debt is all a result of riba. So Islam has forbidden riba. Yamhaqullahu riba. Allah has taken all good out of riba. So we have to find alternatives. And Islam does have alternative solutions. But we should always, as we strive to establish that middle and moderate path, we should always try our best to stay balanced. One of the struggles that we're facing today in the Muslim world also, that has put us off balance, is the imbalance of the madhab. Where a person feels, you know, I'm a Hanafi. And I'm not going to follow anything else. This is an imbalance. Because Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. Prophet Muhammad Wasallam did not teach Hanafism. Abu Hanifa was not a Hanafi. Abu Hanifa was not a Hanafi. I know some of you might say, what? He wasn't a Hanafi? No. Abu Hanifa was not a Hanafi. Imam Malik was not a Maliki. Ahmed ibn Hanbal was not a Hanbali. And Imam al-Shafi'i wasn't a Shafi'i. That's the reality. 
So really, what was their madhab then? Their madhab was the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It was the same madhab of Abu Bakr, of Omar, of Uthman, and Ali. That was their madhab. They were trying to follow Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam as closely as they could. People followed them, and they gave names to that following. But you will not find in any of the writings of the great imams, we Hanafis, we do this. <laughs> you will never find that. Nor in this, the, the statements of their students, you will not find it. So, we have to also beware of the extremes that come out of madhabism. Where up until the 20th century, for almost 500 years, for almost 500 years, Muslims prayed four different prayers around the Kaaba for each salah. When the Adhan went for Salat al-Isha, all the Hanafis would line up behind the Hanafi Imam. They would pray. When they were finished, then the Shafi'i Imam would go under what was called Maqam Shafi'i, and all the Shafi'is would pray. And when they were finished, then the Malikis, and then the Hanbalis. For hundreds of years, that went on. It was ruled in the Hanafi madhab that it was not permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'i. Is that extremism or not? That is extremism. You could marry a Christian and a Jew, but you couldn't marry a Hanafi, a Shafi'i. That's extremism. Something went wrong. And to recognize what went wrong is nothing against Imam Abu Hanifa or Imam Shafi'i. If we recognize that a ruling which is commonly attributed now to their school is not correct, nothing wrong. As a practical example, personal experience. Yesterday I went to the Faisal Mosque to pray. And from the time you get to the main um, courtyard, shoes and socks had to be taken off. I said, what? Why? The courtyard is cold. It was raining, cold rain. How many people went in there and got sick? Me. I got sick. I got a cold now. My throat is sore. I've asked the people to buy me some, some uh, vitamin C to try to deal with this cold. Because of this extreme view of the concept now called Pak. Pakistan. Huh? The, the place you're going to play, pray on has to be Pak. Right? Okay, what does this Pak mean really? According to Sharia, what does it all mean? I mean, does it mean that the place must be spotless? Not a single grain of dirt or dust on it? You can't walk on your shoes on it? No, 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 you can't. 
I know people, friends of mine, Pakistani friends of mine in Canada, etc. If they, if they don't have a white cloth to put on the ground, they will not pray. They'll, they'll delay their salah, even miss their salah, rather than pray on the ground where they didn't have a white cloth to put on it. This is extremism. The Prophet ﷺ said, Allah made the whole earth a masjid for me and a place of purification. The whole earth is a masjid. He prayed on the ground. If you do not see, what is the principle in Sharia concerning cleanliness of a location? If you do not see feces or urine or blood on the ground, then the ground is clean enough for prayer. That's enough. So we didn't need to take our shoes off and walk on, you know, cold, so cold I'm walking on the edges of my feet. Horrendous. Torture. In extreme views. So, Islam is the solution. It is the solution from a principle of governance. It is the solution from the principle of balance. These are the two concepts which I've tried to get across to you today. One, that when we compare secular democracy to Sharia, Sharia wins out if we look at it practically. Sharia wins out because revelation is preserved. Human beings need the guidance of revelation. Without it, they will go astray. If they're left to their own, they will go astray. On the other hand, the practice of Islam has within it a balance. Because the Sharia puts everything in place. It provides the essence of the balance. So Prophet Muhammad when he went into the masjid, and he told his companions, pray with your shoes on. They prayed with their shoes on. During the prayer, on one occasion, he took his shoes off. So they all took their shoes off. This is in Sahih Bukhari. At the end of the prayer, he asked them, why did you take your shoes off? He said, because we saw you taking your shoes off, Ya Rasulullah. He said, I only took my shoes off because Angel Gabriel informed me that I had stepped in some poo, dog, feces. It was on the bottom of my shoe, I didn't realize it. So I took it off. One, he didn't repeat his salah. Two, he didn't go and check the bottom of his shoes to find out about cleanliness. He didn't go to the point of checking the bottom of his shoes when he went in. He had his shoes on, he went in and prayed. It was a gravel masjid. I'm not saying, now go marching into the masjids with your shoes on, okay? I'm not, don't say Dr. Bilal said it was okay. <laughs> no, no. I'm not saying that. The masjids have changed in their quality. We have carpets now and all these kinds of things. But if you found yourself outside, time for prayer came, you can pray with your shoes on. Know that it's okay, it's not a problem. That is the balance. That is the simplicity 
of Islam. Yassiru wa la tu'asiru. As the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, make things easy. The, the deen is about ease. It is not about difficulty. And with that, inshallah, we pray that Allah gives us the sharia again in our lives and gives us back that balance with which the Muslim ummah can come together. The unity that you spoke about in your um, the, your basic emblem of the conference, uh, united we bow, that is an expression of the same concept that our unity in religion, worshipping of Allah, is where success ultimately lies. We have two written questions. Uh, First one is the verse 159 of Surah Al-An'am applicable in this era. Uh, I have memorized what the verse numbers were, so I don't really know what verse 159 is. So whoever was writing this, uh, if you want to stand up and say what, what the verse is, then we'll know. Uh, laws are in place against Islamic teachings in the Pakistani constitution. Should Muslims in Pakistan vote in elections so that we get to select good leaders or should we abstain from voting? Well, I would say you need to vote. You need to vote. Because if you don't vote, and those people who vote, vote in things which are against Islamic teachings, etc., then you're at fault. You're at fault. You know, we, we have a duty to come together to try to correct this. It's, the way to do it is in a manner which is peaceful, we don't need to be shooting, killing each other, etc. over matters, these matters. And voting is the route by which we can express our opinions. I would say that it is the duty of every Muslim in the country to vote for what is correct and to vote against what is incorrect. This is verse 159. Verse 159. Verily those who divide their religion and break up into sects you, Muhammad have no concern in them, uh, in the least. Their affair is only with Allah, who then will tell them what they used to do. Yeah. Yes, those who divide up the religion, this is, this is the opposite of the Sharia. This is the opposite of the balance breaking up into various different sects. We are one ummah. We are one uh, in our fellowship. Because this is what our declaration of faith is. When we say, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, sallam, that is our commitment to follow Rasulullah as one. It doesn't mean that we may not have different interpretations, different uh, views, but we still do it in a united way accepting differences where differences are possible and correcting where errors are made barakallahu fikum assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi seeking knowledge and obligation made easy thought about studying for a long time tuition fees keeping you from actually starting islamic online university has led a revolution in online learning the world's first tuition-free degree, BA in Islamic Studies. Access the knowledge, any place, anytime, anywhere. It just doesn't get any easier than that. Classes, texts, 
assignments completely online. Set your own schedule for the semester. No overseas travel required for the exams. Subjects taught by qualified English-speaking scholars. Weekly live sessions in virtual classrooms. With curricula based on those in El Medina University in Saudi Arabia, El Azhar University in Cairo, and other reputable institutions around the world. Why wait any longer? You pay just a symbolic registration fee and are ready to begin the adventure of higher education. The most diverse student body of any university in the world. 130,000 plus registered students from 217 countries. Log in to the website for more details. www.islamiconlineuniversity.com